Welcome back, podcast friends. I'm really excited to bring you Mark Black today. I serendipitously met Mark through a mastermind group that we were both in. And as soon as I heard a snippet of his story, I asked him if he would be on the podcast as I knew it would be valuable to you all, and I'm always looking for valuable stories, so this is certainly one of them. Mark is a heart and double lung transplant recipient, turned four-time marathon runner, speaker, author, and coach. So you heard that right. He had a heart and both lung transplant, and then went on to run four times in a marathon pretty amazing and inspiring. His new book, The Resilience Roadmap, will show you how to thrive in the chaotic world in which we live. And this episode really dives into his journey, the details of his story, and also incorporating the emotional aspects of what he went through. And then, of course, diving into his book, what led him to write it, and some of the amazingness you can find in it. At the end, I ask him a really important question, which is, how does facing your mortality teach you how to live? So stay tuned for the answer to that. Here is Mark. All right, so honored and excited to have Mark Black with me here today. Um, We met through a business entrepreneurial mastermind group and um, just really blessed to have learned his story and to be able to bring him on today. So thanks for being on. Thanks so much for having me, Claudia. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolute honor. So let's start with how I start each episode, which is asking the question, what does true wellness mean to you? Well, it's full. I love that question. I, I think it means a couple of things to me. It means one, being comfortable in your own skin uh because to me wellness involves the mental and emotional component of that and then and then being able to physically do whatever it is you want to do so from a physical health perspective the the funk your functional fitness if you like or your ability to just be able to do the things that you want to do in your life um yeah so those two things together i know it's not very eloquent but No, it is. I love it. I love it. I love everybody's take on it because it's just sort of a beautiful culmination of their experience and perspective. So it's all perfect in its own way. So I would love to dive in at this, you know, this podcast is very much centered around wellness and health. And so we Mm. will absolutely get to um, the exciting news of your book um, near the end. But what I would really love to dive into is your health journey, which Mm. is sort of the journey that led you down this path anyways, but um, it is, it's very, inspiring it's very um it's it's a journey that's very unique in its in its complexity and so I would love for you to sort of take us down that journey I know there's a lot of pieces to it so I will allow you to sort of share uh the pieces you'd like to share sure and I'm going to start at the beginning but for everybody listening if you're listening to this right now don't worry when someone's when someone starts a story with when I was born uh it it feels like it's (laughs) going to get really long I promise it won't uh but I was born with a congenital heart defect so I had open heart surgery at hours old uh and doctors told my brand new 23 year old first time parents uh, that their newborn son had a potentially fatal heart defect and I was airlifted 
to a hospital three hours away for open heart surgery. That that was the first day of my life. And the following 20 some years were um, in and out of hospitals for a variety of complications relating to that initial problem. The doctors obviously were successful in saving my life that first time. I had another surgery a year later. And then it was just a series of um, different medication changes and, and lifestyle changes to try and keep me going for as long as we could. And we knew very early on from the age of, I don't know, seven or eight years old, that somewhere down the line, a new heart was in my future. We just didn't know when that was going to be. And the, the objective was always prolong that as long as we can, because a transplanted organs don't last forever and be the longer we could wait, the better they were going to get at doing the surgery. So that was kind of always the, the mindset. And then when I was 23, my condition deteriorated significantly in a very short period of time. So I was uh, going to university. I graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in English and Sociology, going on to do a, a second degree in education to become a teacher. And over the span of that fifth year, really over the span of about three months from March, February, March till May of that year, uh, I just deteriorated really quickly. I was losing weight. I was short of breath. I, my energy was uh, plummeting so that I was taking naps kind of halfway through the day, which was very abnormal for me. And I came home. Mom took one look at me and said, we're going to the hospital. You look horrible. And uh, ultimately was told, you've reached the end of the line. You need a heart and lungs because now you're heart problem has grown more complicated. So you actually need a heart and two new lungs and you need them like ASAP. And so that was the beginning of, of what would be a year long transplant journey. Wow. So this is how your parents um, brought a child into the world was with um, all of this immediate surgery, a flight. Um, and so your first 23 years, would you say after that initial surgery and um, anything else that may have come shortly after that, you lived a relatively otherwise healthy life? Like, were you able to participate in athletics or PE or um, anything like that? Yeah, great question. And I would say largely, yes. Uh, so it's interesting. So I, I, am, I am the first of four boys. So as a parent myself of three kids now, I... It, that that blows me away because I think, A, I, we didn't have our first kid until I was 30. Uh, Mom and dad were 23. Uh, but then to go through that traumatic experience with me as their first child and then have the courage to have three more just kind of like blows my mind. Um, and they are both phys ed teachers. They're, they're PE teachers uh, and have kinesiology degrees, both of them. And so, you know, being active was just how you live. Like that was just a very normal, natural part of life. And so um, they made a commitment, a, a decision that was very um, formative for me very early on, which was we will treat Mark as we would treat any other child as much as we possibly can. And so I played every sport uh, that I wanted to and was um, very competitive, so very, very active until about 14. And then doctor said it's starting to get dangerous for him to continue to do that. So we had to dial that back a little bit, but found new outlets for being, for still being active, just not at quite a, uh, the same competitive level. Um, so yeah, the, being active and being involved in sports was very much just a part of our, our household. 
How interesting that your that your parents were already very active, very well versed and studied in the field of kinesiology. So um, maybe a blessing. Um, certainly sounds like yeah. one that yeah. they were able to still encourage and promote and allow you to do things rather than maybe a set of parents who would have been more terrified or unsure if you were able to and taken the more um, conservative route and which maybe would have been more deconditioning for you. So. Um, yeah. So throughout your life where you were, this was, this was all you knew because heart surgery was, was out of the gate. So this was all you knew was I have a heart condition. I had surgery. You're seeing a cardiologist at a relatively routine frequency. Okay. Were you taking medications? Yeah, I was on, uh, I always joke. I was the only first grader that could have been busted for possession. So I, I always had, you know, I, I pills were just, again, when you one of the great blessings of being born with a congenital illness is that you don't know any different and so i say it's a blessing it can be a blessing and a curse depending on how the people around you frame it but for me it was framed as this is just your normal and you will find your way of existing in the world with this challenge that you have and it was also framed as you can do anything within reason that you put your mind to and so so we did that and i yeah i was always on uh some sorts some kind of medication or another different it changed over time initially a lot of uh rhythm uh, regulating medication digoxin and things like that to control rhythm and and then eventually blood thinners and some other things to to deal with the complications that later developed over time and now a whole new set of cocktail of medications post-transplant but um yeah they were just like you eat breakfast you take your pills it was just again a normal part of life Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Um, Okay. So you are living what is your norm, which is post heart surgery, taking my medications around 14, things got a little bit more difficult. Um, Did your heart enlarge or what, what was happening that, that made life a little bit more difficult in the teenage years? Yeah. So I I went, uh, I developed something called atrial fibrillation. So for those not familiar, essentially your, your heart has four chambers, right? top two are atria, bottom two are ventricles. And those top two chambers that are supposed to contract and relax were just quivering essentially. So that's that's what AFib is. And, and lots of people live long, healthy lives with controlled AFib, but it, leave, it, it creates some higher risks around um, intense physical exercise. And my personality being what it was, my parents and doctors all knew I was not and my age, I was not going to be someone who listened to my body very well. I was going to push my limits at all costs. And so it was it was a combination of my health and my mental state that they said, this is, it kind of has to be an all or nothing proposition for him. We can't let him play sports and just kind of listen to his body. He's going to have to not play because he'll be, he'll, his competitiveness will not allow him to listen. So I was at that point playing, um, I was playing provincial basketball, provincial soccer, um, and then a bunch of other school sports. And they were just like, yeah, you're going to cut all of that and find something else to do, which at 14 was, was devastating Mm -hmm. because that was my world and it was how I identified myself. And there were lots of issues around that. Um, ultimately it was good for me, not just from a health perspective, but also from a developmental perspective, I think, to learn how to redefine how I define myself, number one and how to deal with, you know, disappointment and rejection, which we're all going to face at different points in our life. 
Yeah. I think, well, my son's 15, so I can, I can absolutely imagine him being told he, you know, his, his sport is soccer. And I can imagine him being told that he just from a health perspective, can't continue that. And so I can imagine how devastating that would be. Um, was that the first time you really felt sort of the gravity or significance or, or difference in your life compared to others around you because of that, like sort of cut off from, from what you were able to do? Yeah, it was certainly the the first time that I had a real appreciation for how potentially serious this heart condition was because it was it was pretty serious all along but again we had normalized that um i was different visibly from a very young age because of the traumatic couple of years uh, initial years of my life um i did not grow at a regular rate so i was always the smallest kid in my class the smallest kid on my team even today i'm five feet four feet 11 inches tall and i'm a very small guy um so that part was always sort of visible to me and i developed you know i what i like to think i developed character traits that compensated for that in terms of just tenacity and i was just going to outwork everybody else uh which have served me well in other areas but yeah that was the first time when i really felt like oh this this health issue is eventually going to stop me from doing things that I want to do. Because until that point, there were some inconveniences, but other than that, I was, I felt like I wasn't really limited. Mm -hmm. Yes. I can imagine that. Um, Okay. So you're sort of working through the social dynamics of that, the difficulties of having to stop some of the passionate um, athletics that you were loving and were physicians just sort of keeping a closer eye at that point? I'm still not talking about transplant yet, but just kind of keeping a closer eye on, on the AFib. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, so I'd be, um, I mean, family doctor visits probably monthly-ish, blood work every month. And then I would see the cardiologist sort of every six months, unless things got more more complicated, which by and large, they didn't. So I would, I would also do uh, Holter monitors, so 24-hour EKGs once every year or every six months um, so that they can monitor what the AFib was doing and um, and took preventative uh, anticoagulants, blood thinners, right, to prevent clotting. That can be a risk from that. And then it was just sort of like, yeah, we'll wait and see. And, and, again, and again, it was, you're going to need a new heart, but let's see how long we can put this off for uh, because that's in your best interest to do that as long as you can. Mm-hmm. Okay. So take us through, um, you're 23, right? Take us through how, how that conversation started. Um, what sort of changed in your health to, to sort of prompt that conversation? Yeah. So as I was saying that, that last part of the second semester of my fifth year of university, I noticed the symptoms. I was more short of breath. I was more fatigued. Uh, what I didn't have the appetite I normally did, although I can't say that I noticed I should have noticed weight loss, but I, I always joke I was a 23-year-old university guy. Like, we don't stand on scales very often at that no. age. Uh, and I came home at the end of that semester. I hadn't been home in a month or two. And my mom physically could see the change. She saw me and was like, you look horrible. Like, you've lost a bunch of weight. And and got me to weigh myself right on the spot. And I weighed in at 84 pounds or something. Mm-hmm. I'm a little guy, but I'm 125 pounds now. And I'm I'm not overweight. So I was skin and bones. Uh, and she took me to my family doctor that day. He saw me and said, go to the hospital. They're waiting for you. 
and I was admitted to our local hospital and then transported by ambulance to the, the regional cardiac center about two and a half hours away. And I stayed there for a month mm -hmm. and they just sort of stabilized me. I was in right and left-sided heart failure. So uh, my lungs were filling with fluid. My abdomen was also filling with fluid, which is why I wasn't uh, hungry. So they got the fluid off of me with diuretics, uh, put me on a super high calorie diet to try and put some weight back on and got me stabilized. And, but at that point they, they, and they ran, uh, you know, every test imaginable EKGs and echoes and stress tests and everything. And then my cardiologist came in one day, uh, near the end of that stay and said, you need a heart and actually you need a heart and two lungs and you need them like yesterday. Oh. Uh, at that point, and, and for the couple of years leading up, there was talk that heart might mean heart lung because of the nature of the complication. One of the extra issues that developed over time uh, was that the left ventricle was thick and stiff. So the bottom chamber of the heart would pump very well, but it wouldn't relax. So it wouldn't fill with, fluid, with, with blood properly. And that was causing high pulmonary artery pressure. So the main artery carrying um, blood to your lungs was very, very high. And so the doctors gave me the layman's explanation was if we replace your heart with a new heart, it will not be able to withstand that pressure in that artery. It's going to need, we need to, to give you a whole new, the whole new engine block, the surgeons called it. Uh, and so about, so that was, I went to that hospital in May, in September of that year. I was listed for transplant. So about three months from the time I was there for about a month, they discharged me, sent my file away because they had to, we had to be accepted on the transplant list. And I was put on the transplant list in Toronto in October of 2001. Wow. Where did you live in comparison to Toronto? So we're in Moncton, New Brunswick. So um, for those not familiar with geography, to, uh, the Canadian geography, about two months, two provinces away about a thousand miles 1400 kilometers give or take uh and and that meant moving right so different organs will have a different lifespan from donor to recipient lungs at that time were the more fragile of the two had about a six hour lifespan now they've since then uh increased that but at that time it meant in order to be listed for transplant in toronto we had to live within a two hour radius by car of of that hospital so we had to move so we had a family meeting and mom and dad decided that mom would stay here in moncton with my three younger brothers who were at that point in high school and middle school and try and keep their life as normal as we could and dad would move with me to toronto and so in, in october that's that's what we did so we moved to toronto october of 2001 we were super fortunate that my dad had a cousin who lived in the area who said uh, he had actually separated. So he and his two sons were living in this big house. He said, you know, we've got a room, come and stay with us, which was huge because to pay rent and a mortgage would have been uh, a big financial burden, obviously. And we moved in with them for about three or four months. And then in April of 2002, so I guess more like six months, in April of 2002, my condition deteriorated again, and um, I was now in ventricular tachycardia. So now the bottom chambers are doing crazy things. And doctors explained that you're at high risk for sudden cardiac death. So your heart goes really fast and then stops, and there's no real warning that it's going to happen. 
And they said the only real thing we can do, like pace, you're not a candidate for a pacemaker or a defibrillator. Uh, you're on all the right medications already. But we can't, knowing you have this issue, we can't leave you at your cousin's house anymore. So we are going to admit you to hospital indefinitely, essentially. And so in uh, April of 2002, I moved into hospital at Toronto General to wait uh, until a donor was found. Wow. How were you all doing, you and your parents, how are you all doing emotionally, psychologically? How, how I mean, you, you know, you sort of had this, um, you know, smaller sort of scare at age 14, not quite talking about transplant yet, but, you know, a life change at 14. Um, and now we're full force transplant has to happen. Um, we're moving, we're like committed to this. How is everybody handling it? I mean, I, I think all things considered, and obviously in retrospect, I think we forget a lot. I think our brain protects us in that way. Um, so I would say fairly well, although, I mean, we certainly, there were lots of moments of uh, breakdown and uh, for me, especially, and I'm sure for mom and dad and they hid it from me, they did a really good job of trying to um, be honest, but also not put their, add to my stress by putting their emotions on me. Um, so I know between the two of them, I'm sure there were a lot of conversations that I don't know about that were pretty intense. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, you figure it out because you don't have a choice, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just like you, you take it one day at a time and deal with the next issue that comes along and try and find the best way to walk through it. And so there were good days and bad days and, and lots of challenges in that. But overall, we had a wonderful foundation of first of all, just a great, strong family and, and mom and dad were, were very strong together, which made a huge difference, I think, uh, and was a great blessing. And then, you know, we are fortunate to live where we live and had incredible medical support as well, because it, it was not lost on me that in many, many, many places around the world, uh, it would have been much, much harder, if not impossible, to go through that process. So we tried to kind of focus on that and on what was going right in despite the challenges. And that made it more bearable, certainly not easy, but more bearable. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, it's absolutely true. A thousand miles sounds like forever, um, but it, it absolutely could be a lot worse. It could be many countries away, continents away, and um, at least you're able to stay in your home country and um, and be in somewhat driving distance for family to to come visit as they needed. Yeah, and mom and dad, again, the, the blessing of both being phys ed teachers meant that they had similar qualifications. And so the school board actually was really gracious and said, we'll just allow you to share one job. And mm -hmm. so you go back and forth, switch places, basically whenever you want, as long as one of you is here to teach in that position, and the other would be on on a sick or deferred leave, and they made all kinds of uh, of HR took care of that to make sure that that financially that worked, and so that allowed the flexibility of them to change and they switched places back and forth several times through the time that I was waiting, which again made life easier. Wow. Yeah. Yes, that's a huge blessing, yeah. um, and and kudos to to that employer because that's certainly not um, always the case that yeah. they are that accommodating. What um, I, you know, from a health care sort of plan perspective and the type of health care coverage that exists in Canada, um, like are transplants just part of your citizenship? How does how does that work? So fortunate. 
Um, so, so a quick digression. We, uh, shortly after, like a couple of weeks after I was out of ICU post transplant, we got a bill in the mail, uh, by accident. So my surgeon had a new secretary and she accidentally sent us a copy of the bill that was supposed to go to Medicare. Uh, anyway, long story short, that bill was for roughly $500,000 that included my six month in hospital and the surgery and medications, et cetera. And what might've been a very shocking and stressful situation for somebody in another country, we, we, as Canadians, we were just like, well, this is clearly a mistake. Like we don't know this money. Uh, and we didn't, it was, it was totally a mistake. So no, there were, at a, there were the costs to move and you know, the, the missing salary and lots of other, um, external things that were affecting life were on us, but the actual medical care, everything that happened in the hospital was 100% covered. Wow. So we didn't have to worry about that at all, which is, yeah, again, a, a tremendous blessing. And, and even afterwards, I very fortunate that, um the drug plan that mom and dad had was very good and then the province has a special transplant medication program to cover the anti-rejection drugs which if that didn't exist it's about 2500 bucks a month that i'd have to be paying for those so yeah just i think my lucky stars i'm a canadian all the time I was going to say there may be uh, an influx of citizenship applications after this podcast and after your book and after all of your interviews. Yeah. Um, we lived in Washington State for a little bit and uh, and I we, we we joked, kind of half joked, like, I mean, we're already basically in Canada. Let's just see if we can just move right on up. Um, we didn't, but this uh, definitely pushes, pushes me over the edge a little bit. Um, I think it's fantastic because the concerns, the endless concerns over the financial just burden of all of this and you know and at least in the u.s i can speak to would would just in and of itself be its own endless stressor so um so i'm really happy that that was the case for you yeah no i mean we we i often thought about that and we talked about it the fact that you know how stressful the situation is like disregarding the health issues the logistical issues around it were stressful to add the financial stress and component to that would would have been overwhelming like it would have just been mm-hmm. yeah it would have been it would have been insane yeah yeah what a blessing um okay so you're in the hospital you're waiting um you're waiting to be told that which yeah. is must be such a i've actually had um you know some clients and family members um friend, family members of friends on transplant lists so i i know a little bit about what goes through everyone's minds. And it's like, you know, you're, you're waiting for these organs. You also understand at a very granular level that that requires somebody else to lose their life. And so there's just, it's such an emotional time. Mm -hmm. So take us through sort of like what's going through your heart, what's going through your head during this time as you're waiting for your organs. Yeah. So first at a basic level, there's just fear because I'm there literally because my heart could stop at any second. So you have to, I had to process that for a while. And so there were uh, about a month of just every time my heart skipped a beat going, oh, is this it? Is this, is this the thing we've been waiting for? Um, being afraid to go to sleep at night. And then I had to just kind of make a decision to say, that's out of my control. I'm going to try and focus on what I can, what I can control, which is part of what I talk about in the book. Um, and then, yeah, the piece about, you know, your, your life depends on the life of somebody else ending which I'm not sure you ever fully grasp. I mean, it's been 20 years and I still kind of wrestle with that sometimes. The 
the way I reconciled that, because I knew I had to find some way to kind of be okay with that, um, was to say, we're, we're certainly, and we're, we're a faith-filled family. So prayer was part of our, part of our journey. And I always said, we're never, we're not praying for someone to die. We would never pray for someone else to die. The prayer is if that happens and that's going to happen, whether I'm here to receive those organs or not, that something good can come from that experience. And that was, that was the prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how, that, yeah, that's how we kind of wrapped our head around it was the hope that amidst this very tragic situation for this family, that maybe there was some comfort in knowing that their loved one allowed somebody else to live on. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and then to be able to, you know, pay it forward. I mean, I'm definitely designated as an organ donor and I encourage people to do that. Um, I think, especially once you know what, how that all works and the, and the extreme blessing that is on the other end of that, um, you know, it's like, why, it's not even a question. I mean, why wouldn't I do that? Um, okay. So take us through, you're getting the call. How do when you, you're in the hospital. So the call is a little bit different than maybe who's just waiting for the cell phone. Like you've got a whole team there who can rush in. So how does that work? Exactly. Yeah. And in fact, we did, we didn't even really ask. I just assumed, I guess I was like, so whenever this happens, we'll just kind of be told. And, and actually it was still a call, but it was my, my nurse Gail came to the door of my room. So it was September the 6th, 2002, 10, 15 PM. My nurse Gail comes to the door of my room and says, there's a call for you at the nurse's station. I've got a phone beside my bed. Like I've been there six months, never had a call at the nurse's station. So I know something's up and I followed her into the nurse's station and they hand me a phone and a stranger says, I think we have a set of heart and lungs for you. And there's a long, awkward pause because I don't really know how to respond. It's so funny. You have 10 months to prepare and yet I'm speechless when it happens. I think I managed to thank you. And uh, the, the coordinator, transplant coordinator who's calling and who's managing the logistics of this process says, so the organs have yet to be retrieved, which means the surgical team that's gonna go and actually get them is on their way. Uh, and that means they, that this can still be what they call a false alarm in the transplant world, which means all of the external testing has been done, the blood typing has been done, everything looks good to be a match. But doctors may retrieve those organs or take the organs out and see something that can't be seen on a test that indicates that these organs are not usable. So I had had colleagues, friends uh, who were waiting on the list as well, who had had multiple false alarms. So you're kind of getting ready, but also not getting too excited because you know in three or four hours you may get the news that no, this is not gonna happen. So I'm getting ready, call mom, who's the one with me in Toronto. She makes her way downtown, call everybody at home to say, hey, we think this is happening. We'll give you an update when we know. Finally, we get news, I don't know, must've been two or three in the morning that yes, it'll happen probably around five or 6 a.m. So they start to prep me and it, about 5.30 in the morning, the surgical team just comes to the door and says, okay, we're ready to take you to the OR. And I remember mom and I had this, I mean, we'd had all this time to, to chat, but um, we had this brief moment. And the last thing I said to my mom was, mom, I'm gonna see you soon. And they wheeled me into the surgery and uh, I was in surgery for seven or eight hours and then in the intensive care unit for five days of which I remember next to nothing because the you're heavily sedated to 
it's basically to make sure that you don't move a lot so that you can be, you know, you can, your body can heal. Uh, so I remember, you know, mom tells me funny stories. I remember very little of those first five days. Um, I was taken back into surgery once 12 or 13 hours after initially coming out because there were blood clots. They went back in and cleaned those out. And, uh, and I was out of the ICU five days later and then out of the hospital 16 days after this, after the surgery. So, which is an incredibly quick recovery. Like they didn't, they told us to be prepared to be there for a few months after the surgery. And, um, I was just really, really fortunate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're going into this, um, probably in a much, um, more conditioned, healthier state, even though you couldn't necessarily do sports, you know, you did sports most of your life coming from a family who's active. Um, you're not, you're not going in there, um, otherwise unhealthy other than, you know, your organs just needed those organs need to be replaced. So, so that's amazing. That's an amazing turnaround and discharge timeline. Um, how did you initially tolerate, you know, the anti-rejection medications? And I, it sounds like that all kind of went pretty smoothly. By and large. Yeah. I mean, so it's funny, one thing you say, and that's, it's absolutely true. The only thing that I could really control waiting was to be as fit and strong, relatively speaking, as I could be given the, given the situation. And that they told me that they said, the more kind of base level fundamental strength you have, and any kind of fitness you can have is going to serve you well afterwards. And so I would, and, and I was, but I was on telemetry, I was on the heart monitor, which doesn't function through concrete floor. So I had to stay with on the ward where I was staying at all times. So I would walk laps of the hospital ward, grab it, like dragging my IV pole, um, and, you know, and lift like little hand weights and do squats and things like that. Just anything I could do to try and maintain some level of strength. And I'm sure that that, that that played a role. And then, you know, post-discharge, um, I, there was a mandatory rehab program the hospital had in place for, for the multi-organ, multi-organ transplant program. So we would go to the gym three days a week as part of our follow-up. Uh, and I threw myself into that. And then from a rejection drugs perspective, I was, again, really lucky that I, doctors sometimes have to try a multitude of different drugs before they find the one that kind of works well for you. And it's a, they call it a cocktail because it really is a combination of medications. Uh, and, and for the most part, the first thing they tried in most cases worked. So, um, and yeah, and I tolerated them fairly well. They can be really hard on your digestive system. And I tolerated that fairly well. So there was a little bit of playing with that, but for the most part, um, my body accepted the organs and, and tolerated the drugs very, very well. I had one little bout of rejection about three months out that was quickly treated with some IV steroid. And other than that, it was a pretty smooth, pretty smooth recovery. Amazing. Um, they're going to put you on the, on the billboard for the hospital. I'm sure <laughs> yeah. if they need any marketing, uh, we did, we did a good job. Look at, look at our, our yeah. Um, outcome. Yeah. Success okay. story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I just, I think there's so many lessons to be learned here. And so I, I want to make sure that I'm hitting as, as many high yield lessons here um, from a medical standpoint, and then we're going to move into resilience and your book. Um, from a medical standpoint, what would you say was um, sort of your biggest insights? And um, my world is in patient advocacy. So what would you say were some of your biggest insights and also recommendations? We just talked about 
you know, don't, don't sit there complacent waiting, right? Like mm-hmm. do something to help your body, mm-hmm. even in the interim, what would be some of your, um, just advocacy? Yeah. So number that's the, the biggest thing is, is asking a, asking as many questions as possible. So I think we're much better at this than we were 30 or 40 years ago in terms of our cultural perception of physicians. Like I think there was a culture back in our parents or grandparents generation that said, you don't question a doctor like they're the expert and you just do what you're told. We never did that. It's not that we didn't follow direction, but until I understood why something was being recommended, we weren't going to do it. Um, and, and that was because we had learned through trial and error that sometimes they haven't considered every angle because they're looking at what they're, the, the particular issue you're facing that day and maybe not the whole picture because they just don't have the time. So yes, they ask for a history, but sometimes it's asking questions that they go, oh yeah, well, we hadn't thought about that. Oh, okay. So based on that, we're going to try, you know, this instead. Um, it also, in my case, and I'm not the only one, um, you're dealing with a multitude of physicians. So in my case, so there's a lung transplant team, there's a heart transplant team. They both have opinions. They don't always agree. Uh, and then there's also a, a, a dietitian and a nutrition team, and there's a phys- physiotherapy team. And, uh, and, and they do a pretty good job at the multi-organ transplant program in Toronto of making that a team where everybody talks to each other, but things get lost in translation. So yeah, just being a really good advocate for yourself. We were adamant about taking notes in all of those meetings. Um, mom or dad usually, and that was the other thing, having somebody else with you. So even though I was a, you know, I think pretty intelligent functioning 24 year old adult, we knew that there was value in having two of us hear everything because two different people hear two different things. And sometimes I would hear something that mom or dad missed and vice versa. So both of us listening, always taking notes, clarifying anything that is not clear. And then anything that doesn't sound right, just going, have you thought about, or let's keep in mind this to make sure that we're all on the same page. That was huge. Um, and then simple as it sounds, once you understand the plan and we're all on the same page, execute the plan, like do what you're told. <laughs> um, so I like, I was on a low fat, low salt cardiac diet, pre-transplant, post-transplant, there was another dietary program to follow. I followed it. I mean, it wasn't always fun. Um, I was on a, a very specific uh, medication regimen. And so I'm taking medications. At, I think at the beginning, there were like something like 12 medications. And it was at four different times in the day. And those times mattered in terms of the sequence of when I took what. Uh, and we took careful notes and set alarms on my phone and did all the things to make sure that I was taking those pills at the right time. And I, I know that I had fellow patients who were kind of lackadaisical about that or just didn't really worry about it too much and they didn't do as well. So, uh, and, and it doesn't mean that there was certainly, there was a role of good fortune and luck and whatever else uh, as well. You can do all the right things and it doesn't work sometimes, but I was going to make sure that if this didn't work, it wasn't going to be because we didn't do everything we could do. Mm, I love that. Such important, such important points there. Um, and, and I think, I think about the importance of you do your due diligence, you choose the team that feels right to you, you get all your questions answered, but the, and then once you've decided to move forward and you're happy with that plan, you actually have to execute on the plan and follow the instructions and do what they're advising you to do that is 
scientifically sound and, and make sense to you. So um, I think that those are really important points. Um, so let's get to the exciting news, which is your book. You're in pre-launch phase right now. Yes. yes. The Resilience yeah. Roadmap. Tell the us about it. The Resilience Roadmap is, yeah, I was just saying it's really cool to hold it in my hand. So this is the culmination of 20, 20 years, I guess, of, uh, of learning and studying and figuring out um, a, how did we do what we just talked about? So um, post-transplant, I became a professional speaker. I've been speaking since 2005 and I've worked with something like 800 audiences and uh, organizations all over North America and spoken to something like 180,000 people or something. And, you know, people want to know, first of all, they like to hear the story and all oh, that's inspiring, but then it's like, okay, well, what's the practical takeaway for you? Like, you're not living that same journey, but you have your own challenges and struggles that you're dealing with. What can you use here? And ultimately this is, this is, is how I boiled all of that down. So the subtitle of the book is, is seven guideposts to charting your course in a chaotic world. And the idea is, to me, resilience is not what I think most of us think of when we hear the word, which is bouncing back, right? Like, oh, we gotta be resilient. We gotta bounce back from adversity. I think that's a misnomer because there's no going back, right? Like we all know, we've all been through this global pandemic for the last three years. And we, I think I'll recognize now, there's no return to 2019. Like we've all been trans, um, transformed in a variety of ways and the world has as well. And that's not a bad thing, it's just is. And to so to say the goal should be to go back to a previous time is kind of silly. So instead it's the resilience is about growing through whatever it is you go through. So how can you not just survive the challenges that you face, but how can you leverage them to make you a better person than you were before in whatever, however you define that. So a better employee, a better manager, a better person, um, a healthier person, how can you be better because of your challenges as opposed to in spite of them? Mm. I love that. And so you, and so it's a roadmap. So, um, you've sort of got guideposts as if you were like charting sort of like a, like navigating a course, um, and do they each build upon each other? Are they in a specific order? Um, what does it look like? Yeah, absolutely. So yes. And yes. Although I, I also will say it's, they relate to each other, they follow each other, but also I like to think of them circularly in the sense that it would be really lovely if we had a start line and a finish line you'd be like okay i'm resilient now and i can just put this away but the reality is we have to kind of go back to the beginning and, and re-begin uh the journey all the time so the seven steps really quickly are acknowledge so let's make sure that we face the fact that there is an issue here whatever that issue is right denial happens all the time we can choose to put it over here in a corner and pretend it's not happening but it is so first we have to face it then we have to accept the parts of it that we can't control. And we talked about that a little bit already. How do you figure out in any given situation, what are the parts of this that I can do something about? And let me devote my time and attention and energy to those things. Because if I don't, I'm gonna waste a lot of time and energy on things, stressing about things I can't fix. And I'll have less left over to do something about, to use on the things I can, I can actually do something about. So we accept, we adapt. We're in a new world. We have new rules. We have to play by those new rules. We have to figure out how things work today versus yesterday. So being adaptable and flexible 
is increasingly important. Um, aspiration. So the next step is figuring out what does success look like for me in this context? We will never be able to achieve what we want to achieve. if We don't know what it is we want. And the single greatest secret, if there is one, to maintaining your ability to move forward is knowing why you're doing what you're doing, right? And so many of us just never kind of take the time to define what that is. And and it'll change and that's okay, but um, we need to know what we're working towards. Uh, then we take action. So we have this plan, you know, we get executed. We talked about that. And then we assess every periodically, every so often. So we set out this plan, we start to take action on it, but we pause every once in a while to go, okay, is this working? Um, just because we made, you know, in a corporate context, I always say, okay, you made your three-year plan, which by the way, anything more than a three-year plan is ridiculous at the rate of change today. People, businesses used to talk about five-year and 10-year plans. Things are going to change way too much. So we're starting to execute this plan. Is it still working? Because too often we create these plans and we put them off to the side and then we just say, okay, that's done. Well, is it? Is it working? Are we getting the results we want or do we need to readjust? And so then finally we say, okay, what's what are the adjustments? What are the, the changes that we need to make so that the plan continues to work for us? So I always say the the why needs to stay consistent why we're doing what we're doing but how we get there needs to be flexible because things are going to change so then we go all the way back around and we say okay let's acknowledge what's going on now and we we, we do the, we do the cycle again so that's the the rough outline of the book mm, i love it i love it and i love that you're I can imagine your 14 year old self not um, having any clue that this was going to be your path. <laughs> like I, you not envisioning you nope. would be taking the learnings from a, a long, complicated health journey and ultimate transplant to now write a book and be and be talking to corporations. Never in a million, never in a million years. And even, even up until I was 20, like right, even after transplant, I mean, my plan was to be a teacher like my parents. And that's what I was going to university for when I got sick. And then after the transplant, the docs were like, well, you're heavily immunocompromised. So hanging around with a bunch of kids in a building, closed space for uh, eight hours a day is probably not the best thing for you. Uh, especially at that point, I'm much less immunocompromised now than I was, although I am still on those medications at lower doses. So I had to just find a new thing to do. I had to adapt part of the part of the book and um experimented with this thing called speaking and then it ultimately again evolved over time to to what it is now but it was never the grand plan from the beginning for sure mm -hmm. so interesting it's always so interesting to see how the journeys play out well i'm really happy that we all get to learn from you and your journey and that you are uh so generous in sharing with all of us I will put the link to pre-order um, in the show notes. And before we wrap up, what I would love to ask is um, how did facing your mortality, so how did the prospect of dying at a relatively early age teach you how to live? What a great question. Thank you, Claudia. Uh, yeah, one of, one of the lines I used to use was there's nothing like facing your death to teach you how to live properly um, or at least live with more intention. I think that was the biggest thing was, well, there were two things. One was the very, I mean, we all get it, but we don't, that life is fragile, right? So we kind of know, and we also kind of know, yeah, eventually I'm going to die, but it's not a, it's not a reality that's in the forefront of our brain. And I don't think it can be like on the front of your brain all the time, or it would be crippling, but we have to have 
an appreciation for the fact that it isn't forever because that also prompts us to do something with what we have. And so the thing that I thought about a lot in the hospital was all of the people, including myself, who live life for someday. This this magical day when everything's going to be just right, whether that's when they're retired or when they have money or when they have time or whatever it is. And then they're going to do all this great stuff. And most of us people, let's be real, just it never happens. And so I sat in that hospital thinking about all those things for me going, if I ever get out of here, I'm going to start doing those things now. I'm not going to wait till I'm 65 or whatever that magic time is to start doing them. And so I often say to, to people, um, I wear a bracelet that says live today um, on it. And, and that isn't live every day like it's your last day because that's incredibly impractical. Uh, but it is it is live today. It is take advantage of the opportunity that you have by being alive today. Um, it is a statistical miracle that any of us exist at all. And so let's use it and let's use it well. Mm, I love that. Thank you so much for for sharing that. I actually share that with my son often too. Just do you, do you know how, how rare it is to be a human? Like, do you know what the numbers are? Like one in 400 million or something. And so he, mm-hmm. he, he's uh, annoyed by that question. Now he, knows, <laughs> he, he knows I'm going to ask it, but I think it's an important, I think it's important to remember that, you know, this is, uh, this is a special existence and what you do with it matters. So thank Absolutely. you so much, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a, been a treat and a fun conversation. Absolute honor. A huge thank you to Mark for joining me and putting up with poor audio on my part. I forgot to mention at the beginning to all of you, but I had some mic mishaps and I had to go with the computer mic, which is why the body of the podcast doesn't sound fantastic on my end, but definitely does on his. So at least I talked less and hopefully didn't bother you all too much, but I appreciate your patience with that. And I appreciate you continuing to join us and listen to these amazing guests and their valuable insights and life experiences. Thank you so much, Mark, for joining us and for giving us this amazing book to read and to benefit from. I have his information as always in the show notes and I highly encourage you to order the pre-launch of his book, as I will be doing as well. And I'm excited to bring you our next guest next time. See you here then.